Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that in my weakness you would help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. And our gracious Father, we do pray that you would help us all uh, to hear it as it is, the word of the living God to us and to know its encouragement to live godly lives and uh, to help us trust our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, of course, it's never great to uh, start a talk by saying last week we looked at, uh, alienates everybody who wasn't here last week, but actually that's where we need to start this morning. Last week we saw that Jude was written to ask his readers to contend for the faith, the gospel that they'd received from the apostles, because some people had snuck in, bringing with them a lifestyle that turned the grace of God into sensuality and denied Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. So they were people who were denying the faith, denying the gospel, by denying the consequences of the gospel, the call to live a life of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, a life that delights in doing God's will as it's revealed in his word. They were instead using grace as an excuse to sin to do whatever pleased them and rejecting God's law as a guide to the righteous life God calls for from his holy people. They were people who later church history is characterised as antinomians, people who taught that freedom from the condemnation of the law and the works of the law as the source of justification was also freedom to decide for ourselves what was right and wrong, to live just as we please setting aside God's commands in his law. Having introduced last week Jude's call to contend for the faith, that is, to make a concentrated effort to maintain the gospel and the response it calls for uncorrupted and unconfused. Today we're going to look first at the way Jude persuades his readers that this is a necessary and urgent task. And he'll do this in verses 5 to 19, by demonstrating from scripture and other sources the danger and destructiveness of the life and teaching of those people who've come in by stealth. And then in verses 20 to 25, he will show us how, in the face of the threat of these people and those like them, we contend for the faith both individually and as a congregation. That's where Jude, in a sense, makes the application of his teaching. Now, Jude's determination to persuade his readers of the danger of these people can make verses 5 to 19 seem kind of a little strange and inaccessible to us for three reasons. Uh, firstly, unlike us, both Jude and his audience know already what these people have been doing and teaching. Uh, we might have found more explicit description of their error helpful, but Jude doesn't need to repeat and analyse their errors they know them. His task is to give his readers confidence and determination to reject those errors by persuading them of the danger of these people's behaviour and teaching. And secondly, Jude and his readers shared an acute consciousness that they are living in the last days. And so they read the scriptures, our Old Testament is speaking directly to their time for the events recorded in scriptures are types, they say, of what will happen in the last days. And thirdly, and this may surprise you, uh, Jude is actually the Tim Keller of his day. Okay, So he knows 
the world of his audience, what they're reading and what they're listening to. Jude's familiar with it and can make use of it to persuade. So just as Keller might quote or refer to, you know, Tolkien or Jonathan Haidt or a New York Times article, because people in New York and in his congregation are familiar with them, Jude can refer to Enoch or the Assumption of Moses to make a point. For they were books Jews and Jewish believers in the first century were familiar with, though foreign to us. Jude's not writing a universal treatise, but dealing with a local issue, and he's writing with that clear goal that these believers he knows and loves contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's his effectiveness as a communicator to his audience that can make verses 5 to 19 a little foreign to us. But it is that effectiveness that also helps us see the points he's making about these people and all like them since who turn the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Lord and Master Jesus. See, Jude does have a highly structured argument, an argument that's built around his repeated reference, as you heard, to these people. It's there in verse 8, verse 10, verse 12, verse 16, verse 19. And this helps us feel the growing weight of the danger and destructiveness of the error of these people. And it's a structure that allows us to follow Jude as he builds his case against them and motivates his first readers and us to contend for the faith. So what does he want us to know about these people? Well, Jude turns first in verses 5 to 7 to three well-known Old Testament examples. The first, verse 5, that of the wilderness generation was an example of disobedience that flowed from disbelief, a lack of trust in the Lord. But part of the motivation for that disobedience was the Israelites' yearning for the sensual pleasures, the culinary delights of Egypt. The second and third examples, third, are examples of those who in pursuit of sensual pleasure transgressed created bounds. The angels are a reference to the episode concerning the sons of God in Genesis 6 who left their privileged position to pursue relationships with women. And the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah is a reference to Genesis 19. And while those cities and those associated with them were guilty of other sins, here the focus is on their sexual immorality. All three groups the Israelites, the angels, the citizens of Sodom, enjoyed great privilege given by God of rescue from Egypt, of their position in heaven, of the abundance of the Jordan plain. All three groups rejected the authority of God in favour of pursuing their own will, of pursuing sensual pleasure. And all three suffered the judgment of God, (coughs) whether that judgment was denial of the goal of salvation, the promised land, or being kept in chains, losing all freedom, waiting for the judgment of the last day, or becoming examples of the punishment of eternal fire. And Jude's point in verse 8 is that these people, people who claim the gospel gives them freedom to do things God says he forbids, are practising the same rebellion, They defile the flesh and reject authority and should expect the same outcome. 
And those who share in their views and behaviour, says Jude, will also share in that judgment. Further, these people can only sustain their position that grace gives you freedom to pursue your own sensual pleasures in defiance of God by rejecting these judgments of his revealed word. And this is what they were doing, relying on their dreams. They were placing their confidence in themselves, the revelation they claimed for themselves and the authority of their own judgments, just like those today who rely either on their dreams or their scholarly conclusions to justify immorality God condemns are actually relying on themselves. But the judgments of the Old Testament are the judgments of our God, and he doesn't change. Revelation that claims to replace or contradicts God's word is not of God. Revelation that claims that God now permits what is clearly forbidden is a self-serving lie. And no one should think they are safe while deliberately pursuing behaviour, a lifestyle God forbids. And privilege, the privilege of being in a Christian community does not exempt us from the need to trust and obey. Now these people did dispute the authority of God's Old Testament law. Jude says they were slandering the glorious ones. That is the angels who gave the law. Now, we're not sure of the nature of their slander. Perhaps they said that the law belonged to the old age and so had no place now, or perhaps they accused it and the angels who brought it of being oppressive against the freedom of the gospel. We don't know. But the first readers did, and Jude responds to this in verses 9 and 10. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now that sounds a bit strange to us, doesn't it? But there was speculation in, the, in first century Judaism about the burial of Moses and also about the role of Satan in bringing accusations against God's people. And it's thought that this specific story about a dispute over Moses' body comes from the testament of Moses, a Jewish work from around the beginning of the first century. And if you're interested, I can give you more detail from the commentaries. But Jude is using a work his readers are familiar with to rebuff the pride of those people who boldly replace the judgment of God's law with their own judgment. See, the point of Michael's response to the devil, the Lord rebuke you, is that it's not the devil's slanderous accusations against Moses that will have the final say. It's the Lord's judgment. These people might boldly slander the glorious ones who gave the law in their attempts to discredit it and establish their own authority. But it's the Lord's judgment that is final and will prevail no matter what they boldly boast of. You see, people can be very bold in asserting the rightness of their behaviour and denying that any has a right to judge them, including God's word truly. And they'll accuse that word of being harsh, oppressive, belonging to the past. But it is not your verdict on your own life and teaching that has authority, no matter how stridently anyone proclaims that they're right and attacks those who oppose them as wrong. It's actually God's judgment that will prevail. 
for mercy or condemnation. His word alone, not our own dreamings, which can, it's only his word that can tell us where we stand. Now their slander, says Jude, just shows their ignorance and their enslavement to their instinctive desires. And these people were not content for themselves just to live this way. Having snuck in, they are seeking to propagate their views, to teach others their same lawless life. So Jude now mentions three Old Testament figures, Cain, Balaam, Korah, who were all considered to have influenced people for evil. Now Cain may surprise us in this list. You may remember Cain uh, from Genesis 4 as someone whose anger against God overflowed into murder of his brother Abel. But to quote the commentator Richard Borkham, in post-biblical Jewish tradition, Cain became not simply the first murderer, but the archetypal sinner and the instructor of others in sin. All three are seen as instructors of others. So what did these three teach and model? Well, Cain, that you could ignore the warning of God to do what you want. Balaam, that for profit you could promote sexual immorality and idolatry amongst God's people. Korah, rebellion against the authority of God's leader in favour of your own authority. That's what they modelled. And all three came to a bad end, along with all who followed them, as Jude's point is, will be the case with these false teachers and those who follow them. And to help his readers feel that, not just to think that in some kind of abstract way, but to feel the barrenness and destructiveness of these people and their teaching, Jude gives them a number of pictures of these people, pictures to, in a sense, engage our imaginations. You see, it isn't enough that we identify an error. To have the resolve not to tolerate false teaching in our own lives or in our fellowships we need to see its teachers for what they are. And so says Jude, verse 12, as they share in the love feast, a communal meal in which the Lord's Supper would also be celebrated, their lack of fear of God makes them like submerged reefs, invisible menaces which can destroy. They damage the life of congregations. They're also like the false shepherds of Ezekiel 34, only interested in using the flock for their own benefit, not serving it. They are exploiters of Christians. They'll impoverish them. They promise but never deliver like waterless clouds. There's nothing refreshing or life-giving in their teaching. They're completely fruitless like trees uprooted at the end of autumn because of their failure to bear fruit. They're always restless, says Jude. What they always throw up in that restlessness is shameful actions. They're people whose only future is to be lost forever. Now, if you let images like that float around in your head, they will stop you from getting sucked in by these people. And we need that kind of fortification of our resolve because these people are always bold. They'll claim to be spiritual, having dreams from God to guide them. They'll loudly boast of their freedom and how good it is. And they'll tell you, you haven't understood grace unless you live 
as freely as they do, that you have to get over your inhibitions. And that can kind of sound attractive. But their reality is found in the Old Testament types Jude speaks of and the images he gives. They're dangerous and destructive, self-interested, of no benefit to individuals and congregations, productive of no good, shameful and doomed. And Jude tells us that judgment is certain by drawing on words found in one Enoch. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Now, again, we find Jude's quote of one Enoch puzzling. Let me say, who's read one Enoch? Yeah, one, one. We do find it puzzling, don't we? It's not been on our reading list. And, and, and for some of us, it's troubling our doctrine to our doctrine of scripture that he quotes it. You know, does Jude use it because he thinks it's inspired scripture? And if so, does that mean that Jude's not inspired? Well, at this point, remember what I said about Keller. See, Jude knows that the people he's writing to know and respect the book of Enoch. And so he uses it to make the point he wants, using something they're familiar with and accept and whose words make the true point Jude is making helps acceptance of what he's saying. Now, that doesn't mean he thinks one Enoch is inspired and should be part of the canon, just as Paul's use of pagan poets, whether preaching at Athens or writing to Titus, means he thinks those pagan poets are inspired. And saying that this Enoch prophesied doesn't mean that he thinks the right, all the writer of one Enoch said is true. Caiaphas is said to have prophesied when he spoke of the need for Jesus to die. That is, he was given truth to speak by God in this instance. And what Enoch says here is true in this instance. And that attitude to Enoch is respected and useful, but not scripture was common amongst some Jews in the first century. So the Qumran community, the Dead Sea community, for example, valued the work. But they, like other Jews, didn't include it in the canon of scripture. See, Jude uses Enoch because it makes the point he has, in a sense, repeatedly made. But now it's expressed clearly from a source his readers respect. And the point's this, that the ungodly, which is his key description of these people in verse 4, will be judged by God for their deeds and also for their words. All the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. He's saying their end is certain. They won't escape judgment. And at this point, He wants to emphasise their words for one of the features of these people is that they express their rebellion against God in their speech. Like the wilderness generation, they're discontented grumblers, living according to their desires, their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. In their rejection of God's law as their guide for living, They complain about the way it restrains their behaviour, complain that God doesn't want their best in what he commands. And so they arrogantly reject it, claiming the individual knows better than God 
what is good for them. And they do that to facilitate both doing what they want and also to exploit others financially and morally. Well, up to now, Judas used the Old Testament and Jewish literature, and remember, they didn't have a New Testament, to show the character and the end of these people. But he finishes this part of his letter by saying that they should not be surprised by the coming of these people to their fellowship. For this is what the apostles said would happen in the last days, the time they and we live in, the time between our Lord's ascension and the giving of the Spirit and his return. These people are the scoffers that the apostles repeatedly warned them of, those who mock anything that doesn't agree with their own views and who particularly seem to scoff at the idea that their words and actions will be judged. And whatever these people may claim, in the apostles' words, we can see the true character of these people. These people are worldly. They're not believers. Uh, The Greek word uh, for worldly, translated worldly here, is a word used also in 1 Corinthians that describes people who know only the life and wisdom of this age. That is, they do not have the spirit. And so they're not Jesus' people. For as Paul said to the Romans, Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, that person doesn't belong to him. In fact, these people are idolaters. They're worshipping a different God. For in denying the moral consequences of the gospel to live as they please, they're denying the truth of the gospel that Jesus is Lord and serving the idol of their own wills. You get to the end of Jude's description of these people who turn God's grace into an excuse for sensual indulgence and who reject Jesus as the Lord by refusing to do what he commands and you know whether in Jude's day or today their sin is serious, (coughs) their condemnation is certain, their presence and teaching is divisive and destructive. All reasons to heed Jude's call to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, a call he makes to every believer. But how do we do it? Well, Jude tells us how in verses 20 to 25, and it's not by getting out the pitchforks or starting a crusade. Actually, we contend for the faith by firstly attending to the health of our own relationship with God, secondly by relating to those affected by this error in the way the gospel tells us with mercy, and thirdly by having a confident trust in our God. You see, just as a healthy body fights off infection better, so a healthy relationship with the Lord helps us resist the introduction of this destructive behaviour. Now, the idea emphasised in verses 20 to 21 is actually keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, For those of you who are into grammar, that is actually the imperative, the command in the sentence. And all the other phrases get their force from their association with that command and as the means to do what is commanded. So in a sense, you could read it like this. Keep yourselves in the love of God, building up, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the spirit, 
waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Keeping ourselves in the love of God has to be our priority. Now remember in verse 1, believers were described as those loved by God the Father. And Judas started this section by describing believers as beloved. That love is freely given, experienced in his graciously saving us in his son. But we are not passive in our relationship. We must keep ourselves in the love of God, and that is God's love for us. And that's more than living consciously aware of God's love for us, though we should order our lives so that the reality of God's love is always at the forefront of our minds as we experience all that life brings. And we can do that, keep it at the forefront of our minds by meditating on the gospel that tells us Christ died for our sins, keeping that always before us. But this verse, with its call to keep ourselves in the love of God, is calling for more. We must so act and live that we remain always in the sphere of those who continue to experience and rely on God's love for his people. You see a parallel command in our Lord's instruction to his followers in John 15. There our Lord says, As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. We remain in the sphere of Jesus' love, in a place to know and rely on his love by keeping his commands keeping on living as those who trust and obey the Lord Jesus. We keep ourselves amongst those who remain in the Father's love in the same way, by living as those who trust and obey his Son, the Lord Jesus. But Jude highlights here three things crucial to remaining in the love of God in the face of the challenge of these people who are rejecting Jesus' authority and using grace as an excuse for sin. Three things which we should always be doing. And the first is building yourself up in your most holy faith. Now, the faith is the faith Jude spoke of in verse 3, the faith that the false teachers were denying. It's what Christians believe. The gospel transmitted to us by the apostles once and for all, it's truth and the response it calls for. And it's called most holy because it comes from the holy God. It's his message of good news for the world, of Jesus' triumph. It's most holy. And the word used here for building yourselves up, speaks of building on a foundation. Judas calling us to keep building our lives on the gospel foundation, the gospel that says Jesus is Lord and that he saved us from sin to live godly lives of repentance and faith, where we're moved by the spirit of Jesus to put God's good law into practice. We build ourselves up in the faith by understanding, firstly, firstly, by understanding the gospel, what it means that Christ has saved us by dying for our sins and being raised with all authority. And, and though you might be familiar with that, 
that takes some thinking about because Christ having saved us by his death and rising changes everything. Just one small example. Christ having died and risen means that the poor in spirit are blessed, that the meek will inherit the earth. Oh, it means that we live dying to ourselves, which is the complete opposite of what the world believes. You see, there's actually a lot to absorb and a lot of our thinking to change as we grow in understanding of the gospel. So we build up ourselves up in the faith by understanding the gospel and we build ourselves up by growing in faith in the gospel and by practising then the obedience of faith where each day we deny ourselves to follow Jesus. We're to build ourselves up in the faith. And this building up is something we do together. It's not as isolated individuals. Jude's addressing the congregation. He's calling on us to encourage each other to understand, believe and obey the gospel. To keep ourselves in the love of God is to actively pursue reliance on and obedience to our Lord Jesus. And this is a lifelong pursuit where we conform our thinking and doing to the gospel's teaching, never shifting from it as our foundation, from basing our lives on the gospel's truth. And to keep ourselves in the love of God, we must secondly keep praying in the Holy Spirit. Now that's calling that's not calling for us to pray in tongues, but to pray as those who through faith in Jesus are children of God. Those who through the Spirit cry out, Abba, Father, to God in our hearts. To keep ourselves in the love of God, we must be daily practising a real relationship of dependent faith, dependent trust in our Father. And that relationship is expressed and nurtured in prayer and praise, in request and thanksgiving. To live a prayerless life, is to live as if God is absent from his world. It is to live like the false teachers, a godless life, as if it's all up to you. Praying in the spirit, praying as God's adopted children, as Jesus has taught us and he's made possible through his death, is to live seeking our Father's will and relying on our Father's help. It's to live with our lives open to him, conscious always of his presence, and it's to live in reality, for this is God's world and Jesus is his king and we are never alone. And thirdly, we keep our souls in the love of God by waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. The false teachers lived a life oriented to the present, pursuing selfish pleasure now, realising their desires now. But Christians live a life oriented to our future hope, the revealing of the Lord Jesus in glory to judge the world and establish the new heaven and earth. And we look forward to it, not because we're perfect, but because the Lord, the judge, has promised us mercy on that day, mercy that will result in eternal life, and his promise is sure. Waiting expectantly, is one of the key fruits in our lives of believing the gospel, of believing that Jesus is Lord. 
And this waiting expectantly is one of the key ways we keep ourselves in the love of God and protect ourselves from the seduction of those who say, you have to get it all now. You have to fulfil yourself now. You see, this waiting expectantly helps us remember that the pleasures of this world are fleeting and there is a reckoning. Despite the bold claims of the lawless in and out of churches, we are not our own judges. And yes, you can gain the world. You can realise all your ambitions, satisfy every desire, indulge yourself to the full and lose your soul eternally. For those who deny the gospel, who reject Jesus as Lord, will receive no mercy on that day. And so there are lots of questions here out there. Is your relationship with the living God healthy? Are you keeping yourself in the love of God? Are you building on the foundation of the gospel or neglecting its truth, building your life instead on your own ambitions or your pursuit of money or pleasure? Are you praying in the spirit every day, living consciously in the presence of our Father, depending on him, giving him thanks? Or is yours a practically godless life? Oh, and are you waiting expectantly for mercy at the last day? Or are you living like those around you, as if this life is all there is, guided by your own desires to get as many experiences and as much pleasure out of the present as possible? How are you living? Are you keeping yourself in the love of God? We contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. And secondly, by dealing with those affected by this seductive lawlessness in line with the gospel that we are committed to, the gospel that teaches those who hope for mercy to show mercy. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now, you've probably noticed at this stage that Jude is into threes, and so he considers three groups of people who have been differently involved with these people. The first group are those unsettled by the teaching, who have been tempted to believe that Christian freedom is lawlessness, doing whatever you want. So they're wavering in their commitment to God's standards under the influence of these false teachers. They have questions about the need to live a godly life, about saying no to some deeply felt desire that God's word said is wrong. Do they really need to, they're wondering? Or is that just imposing an unnecessary burden on them? What do you do with these people? Do you just ignore them? Do you exclude any who have questions? No, you have mercy. You deal with them gently and patiently, says Jude, retaining them in your fellowship. You don't dismiss their questions, but answer them from the gospel, encouraging their trust in and obedience to the Lord Jesus. And then there are others who have followed these false teachers into sin, and they're in danger of judgment at the coming of our Lord, of being amongst those who face the fires of hell. Well, you see, they may have been taught that there's no wrath against sin, that... Grace is licensed to do whatever you like, and, and so they are unconcerned. But Jude sees their situation as serious and requiring urgent action. Snatch them, and so should we. 
We should never minimise the seriousness of the situation of believers who think they can keep on sinning safely, keep doing those things that God says he condemns and which will exclude them from his kingdom. If we love them, we won't give up on them. We'll snatch them from the fire. But how? Well, in the way the gospel teaches us, by confronting them with their sin and convicting them of their error, rebuking them and calling them to repentance to find forgiveness, the way of Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5. And then, of course, there's this third group, the most seriously affected, those determined to persist in their sin, have mercy on others but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Again, we look to deal with them mercifully, but our dealings with them are to be conducted in the fear of the Lord. And that means not compromising on God's standards. Part of the mercy we show them is clarity about the truth. And so our compassion must not lead us to tolerate or accommodate to their sin in any way. Hating's a strong word, isn't it? But it's saying that there are behaviours that can have no place amongst God's people and those who continue to practise them can have no place either. We have to insist on a repentance, a turning away from their sin, whether that's sexual immorality or drunkenness or greed, for example. Oh, yes, and a turning away from the false teaching that has supported it, a repentance that is full and complete, and until that time they have no place amongst us. How do you deal with sin in those who say they are believers? How do you do? Are you taking it seriously? Do you love them enough to act, to make clear to them the seriousness of their sin and call them to repent? We contend for the faith by attending to the health of our own relationship with God and by loving sinning brothers and sisters enough not to leave them confused or sinning. And thirdly, we contend for the faith by trusting our God Jude concludes his letters by committing its recipients, those he knows are loved by God, to God's powerful care. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and great joy, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. We need to hear that, don't we? It's easy to be shaken by the defection of others or overwhelmed with the task of contending for the faith in the face of the confident mocking of false teachers. It's easy to doubt your capacity to keep yourself in the love of God, to find fault, say, with your consistency in following Jesus or the coldness of your prayers. It's easy to feel yourself drawn into being preoccupied with the affairs of this world and losing your eager expectation of our Lord's return. Jude knows that. He knows that we can be fearful and anxious about our capacity to persevere, about our ability to call others back to the faith. So having summoned them and you and I to contend for the faith, Jude directs us to the adequacy and power of our great God. He is able. That's what you have to hear. He is able. 
What might seem impossible to us is more than possible to him. The good work he's begun in us, calling us to trust the Lord Jesus, to believe the gospel, he will bring to completion. He can keep us from being tripped up by error. He will fulfill for us all he has promised. By the work of Christ, we will be blameless and without blemish or defilement, able to stand in his presence on that day. And it will be a day of joy beyond all confusion, all corruption, a day of pure joy. The God who has called us, loved and kept us. Our Saviour through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is able able to keep us in the love of God. And as Jude says, he deserves all our trust, all our praise, now and forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that we wouldn't be people who are sucked in by the bold claims of people who want to use your grace to do just whatever they please who want to call themselves Christians but actually deny Jesus as their Lord. We pray in your mercy that we would be those who keep ourselves in the love of God, people who build each other up in the faith, people who are constant in prayer and people who look expectantly to the return of our Lord Jesus in glory. And the mercy he brings on that day that will usher us into eternal life. We thank you that you are the God we can trust, the God who can save us completely. And we give you our praise. Amen.